0: Hey, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle. I'm so glad that you're gathering here in the room with us and online. One of the things I want to make sure that's stressed for you this morning is uh, we want to get to know you and your story. Your story matters uh, to God and to us. And so we hope that you take a moment to fill out one of those gen cards so that we can better get to know you, Uh, because for us, the life of the church doesn't just happen On Sundays, even as we think about these questions that we've been asking and answering, really they're lived out throughout the week. What we believe, um, how we interact with others. Uh, It has to be for us as we connect with God, as we're attached to him, that love, that the person of Jesus transforms our hearts so that we can then live and love well. And so we want to help you on that journey and get to know you and your story and know where God's love and maybe he's at work is intersecting with your story. And so today as we are in week three of the question or the series, hey, I've got a question here. Um, I just wanna recognize or, or maybe state the obvious. I understand that it can be a lot to sit through a teaching on difficult subjects, especially when I'm trying to provide nuanced answers and not maybe you're used to seeing like clean clear-cut memes or like little cliches and sometimes you've been told that uh, you've been given that to these answers and those just aren't sufficient so uh, we're trying to do our best to provide those nuanced answers from god's word but within the context of our community in fact over the last several weeks Right, and really the several, last several months, we've been putting out these like snort, short snippets of our teachings on our social media. And it wouldn't surprise you, probably, that some of the responses that we get are these short little memes and clear-cut statements that people just posit as the answer to some of these questions. And, in fact, take a negative view answer to these questions. So when we talk about, does the Bible have errors, you know, the, their short meme it sends kind of some pithy little statement that says, oh, well, of course it does, and, you know, just says this. Or we talked about evil and suffering last week, and how do we make sense of that in our world? Uh, they, they provide that sort of short s- social media way, the only way social media can Response to what we put out and when I see that I want you to know that I don't Quite take that at at face value Because behind those memes behind those statements is a person and their story and so as we ask these questions and seek answers I Know that there's story behind them that there's personal pain uh, There might be some trauma There might be some answers that you've been given and they just don't quite sit well with you and you wonder if there's something more. And so rather than just, quote unquote, just give you the answer, what I hope is that together as a community of faith, we can journey with God through his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to live out the answers that we find together. And so let me just give a quick recap. In week one, we talked about does the Bible contain errors? And the answer to that is, at least that I gave here, again, short one, two sentence it doesn't cover it all. I mean, I went for like 40 minutes on this. So uh, is that the Bible's purpose is to convey truth about God, the human condition, the brokenness of the world, the remedy and restoration of all things. It does not err in its purpose. Week two, we talked about Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And the quick summation is evil and suffering exist as a natural consequence of sinful human hearts compounded over time, redefining good and evil on their own terms. And that does not necessarily include all the natural disasters, as I mentioned, but for the most part in our everyday circumstances, it's compounded selfishness time over time over time, and we feel that in our everyday lives. And both of these questions help us begin to navigate the third question that we're going to address today. How could a loving God send people to hell? Picked the easy ones, didn't I? Let me ask this. I always have questions, follow-up questions to the question I ask. So this shouldn't surprise you. But when I look at this question, I think about this question, What is the opposite of heaven? Some of you scared to answer. Some, most in our modern world, we consume where we think the, the, the paradigm, or um, the dichotomy, is that the opposite of heaven, is hell. That's not actually how the biblical authors think of the the duality. Most of the biblical authors, when you read through the story of Scripture, the opposite of heaven is the earth. See, for them, the earth, the everyday experience, is at an intersect with the eternal, with heaven where God dwells, and to figure out how to bridge the gap between our everyday experience and the eternal. And the divine. So for them, as they th- tell the story, as we see the story of scripture unfold from Genesis to Revelation, the worldview in which they are operating in is that the opposite or the antithesis or or the, uh, the kind of the dichotomy, uh, I keep using as many words to present that dual mindset, is heaven and it's earth. And where do they in fact then overlap? In contrast to our modern worldview, where we typically spout back, well, the opposite of heaven is hell. See, the story of the Bible is about heaven coming to earth and about humanity's attempt to create our own heaven apart from God. And that's where we find ourselves in, constantly clamoring or claiming that we can build a good life in a good world apart from God, thus sometimes creating our own living hell the opposite of heaven is earth, then we start to have to ask, then where does hell fit into the story of the Bible? Because if it's not, well, when you die, you know, just pick a spot, or if the whole story of scripture is not, how do I get to heaven and not get to hell? Or, or, or kind of that dichotomy, where does hell start to fit in? That's a different question. And what we start to figure out or find in the story of scripture is that hell begins to find its place as an outcome of the final judgment on the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a theme that's woven throughout scripture. In fact, when the day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, it cites like in Exodus where where God intervenes within human history in a very personal and practical way where he rescues people and he delivers justice to those who, who need uh, who need justice and so he he punishes wicked he restores righteous where God intervenes within history and and the prophets talk about uh, later on in the Old Testament how the, there was going to be a future day of the Lord where all the evil and suffering that we experience in our day-to-day life would be would be basically punished and done away with, and the righteous would be rewarded. And so the the biblical authors talk about this coming day of the Lord, where the King, the Lord of all, God in heaven, would deal with the wickedness and evil that we see. And there was this future-oriented hope about when God would do that. And we've talked a little bit about that in previous like series, specifically how in the last pages of Revelation, how this picture comes into view by when John's trying to describe it in the words that he uses to describe it of this new creation, of this new heaven and new earth, where there's going to be no more pain, sickness, dying, and, and that God does away with all that because that was an outcome of sin. And so on the forefront of that, The Bible talks about different moments at which God intervenes or intersects with his people so that to show them of what the future might hold, to give them this hope of a new heaven and a new earth. See, what has happened in the scope of human history, and as the Bible kind of outlines in its big story, is that people define good and evil on their own terms. Constantly, consistently. You go out into the grocery store. You go out with your family. And you know that sometimes you just can't help but you make an observation, you size someone up, and you make a call. Or you're, you're evaluating a decision, future coming. And, and, and there's, there's all these kind of situations. And you say, well, I think this is best. Usually What? In my own eyes, or in my mind with the information that's presented. And as Charles was standing up here earlier, said, hey, I can't do this on my, I can't do, live life on my own. But so often, the reason, the outcome of evil, um, that, that we see the consequences of sin is because people are redefining good and evil. And people do this over and over. Because for us, we feel like we have to protect ourselves. That we have to fight for Survival. And ultimately, the only kind of looming issue over us is death. And so we, we fight to try to survive. We redefine good and evil in our own eyes because we're just trying to stay alive and we fear the power of death as a, as a weapon over us. Which is why when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking about how there is eternal life, how there's life after death, life with God, and life, when life is lived with God, death is not the end but a doorway that simply transitions in hopes or anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth. And that eternal life doesn't start at death. It starts the moment you say yes to Jesus and are baptized into him. Amen. And when we start to live with that way, it starts to reorient you to the world around you. Specifically, you're able to focus on Jesus and your attachment with him. Because what Jesus did on the cross is he was going to let evil exhaust all its power on him using its only real weapon, death. See, in the cross, all the evil that had been pent up in human hearts, exercised, levied in the world, Jesus took upon himself to be the remedy. In fact, to basically enact justice. Because we know that when someone does something wrong, true justice, there's, there's consequences. Any parent knows that when they are trying to discipline their child or do something wrong, that, that if, if something's out of step or out of line, it's, there, there are consequences. We even have natural civilian laws that we have deemed this is what's moral and this is what's good, and if you disobey the law, there are consequences. And so God has woven this wisdom into the world in which we live, and so we have a natural bent that says something should be done to any unnecessary suffering, When someone breaks the law or the moral order, something should be done as a consequence to remedy that. And in fact, this is what Jesus does, is he absorbs this onto himself. And Jesus is the remedy that enables us to then practice restorative justice on the earth now. And in fact, this confused the disciples When Jesus talks about this measure of justice, of here's what I'm going to do for you for the world, and now because of my action, you now get to respond in a restorative justice type of way. They were so confused by it. And so what Jesus has to do is on his lead up to the cross, he has to tell them all kinds of parables and examples of what this looks like. Here's what I'm going to do so you can live this type of way now. And now as I live this, as you live this type of way now, you're going to point to a future reality when evil and suffering will then be done away with. Because they wanted to know, the disciples wanted to know when the consequences would be given out to those who were purposely evil or unjust. And so Jesus tells this series of stories, these parables, about the pending final day of the Lord, which is where we find ourselves in today's teaching passage. In Matthew, it's on the lead up to the cross, and they're asking all of these questions. So Jesus, when are you going to deal with them? When do they get what they deserve? And Jesus is saying, well, the reality is, is I'm going to make a move that shows how you should respond in the midst of the world. And so In Matthew chapter 25, let me just read what he talks about at the end of time, this final day of the Lord, and what this looks like. And this is what Jesus says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put out the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's an interesting note that creating a new heaven and new earth, giving people an opportunity to participate in that was something that Jesus mentions here. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in, and I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me, and I was in prison, and you visited me. Hmm. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did you thirsty or give something to drink? When did we see a stranger and take you in or without clothes or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They're very confused. By this, by this response, this depiction at the end of time, and the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And act on behalf of the king is an act done to the king himself. Or for the king himself. And then verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. For I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me and they will go lie into the eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life Did you catch that Hell was it for people When Jesus is retelling this or telling this depiction of the end of time hell was prepared for devil and his angels it wasn't for people like you and me. The original creative purpose of it was a consequence for the angelic rebellion against God that they thought they could do. God, be a better God than God was. And he even depicts this as this lake of fire. And I, I really should pause here because this kind of gets into some of the like, Oh my goodness, some of you have stories like me who grew up in a very maybe conservative church where it was like let's scare people you know out of hell, very fire, brimstone, and, and, and it's like and, and all you can think about is like run away from the flames. And and so I understand that this brings some of that back. And the reality is is what, what is happening here. Is it's it's a word picture. It's trying to describe the reality of, of, of spiritual separation of what, apart from God, and, and and people getting the consequence of what they want in their own hearts. But I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Some of you have been told that there's this literal lake of fire, where someone is being burned for eternity. G.K. Beale in his commentary on Revelation, points out that the lake of fire into which Satan and his angels are thrown is not literal, since Satan, along with his angels, are spiritual beings. The fire is a punishment that is not physical, but spiritual in nature. Think about what's going on here. Is Jesus trying to convey a spiritual reality using word pictures in which they would have understand? Jesus also, when he talks about hell in other places, uses the word Gehenna, which it's like the town dump where things smoldering, burning. It's a place you didn't want to go. It stunk. No, Anybody who lived there was thought as an outcast. It's basically this idea that it was a detestable place. So he's trying to convey this to his disciples. It's a place of eternal consequence. Timothy Keller summarizes this. He says, all descriptions and depictions of heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of disintegration, while darkness tells us of the isolation. Weeping and gnashing teeth talks about like, the, the reality of, of the pain that it, it, it's going to cause and, and, and the anguish that is there. They are, this does not imply that heaven and hell themselves are metaphors, though. For they are very much realities, but all language about them is elusive, metaphorical, and partial. Think about this. Why is hell the way it is? Because if God is the life-giving source of everything that is good in the universe, of everything good that we experience, all joy, pleasure, life, happiness, peace, The utmost expression of true love, of of art, of music, of the best of food, sex, water, all, all the good pleasures that we have in this life, things that are given to us because of the common grace of the human existence. Wherein he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, when this is removed, when all that is good is removed. What are we left with? If his presence is removed from us, and this kind of grace is removed, hell, if life is meant to be lived with God, then life lived without God for eternity must be hell. So in one sense, hell can be understood as the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. We get what our heart wants. We already think we're bossing in charge. We already think we can do life better than God. Huh? On, we think we can manage things better. And so, what hell is, is the eternal consequence of what our heart actually wants. We think we can do it better than God. So, God lets us get, have what we want. We're allowed to be our own God and are allowed to try to sustain and provide for ourselves problem is that's impossible. And we are left with nothing because everything good comes from God. So hell is isolating. It's painful. It's anguishing. It's a place. We don't want people to go and exist for eternity. The problem is, is people think that's what they want. They'd rather be their own God. Some of you know this reality all too f- much for yourself. You'd rather be your own God, live life your way and within your own hands. And sometimes, we get what we want. In fact, what this is depicting is a life lived with utter and total selfishness alone. See, the Bible, as it it outlines when Jesus describes Hades, Gehenna, it's the reality of living under the judgment of God forever, getting what we want. See, even in this passage, Jesus provides trust about the type of people who will be under that judgment and those whose judgment was taken on by Jesus. Jesus is trying to convey that life doesn't have to be this way. That if, if there is trust placed in Him, lived in reality under the one King, understanding that He's going to create a new heaven and new earth, and that if life lived under that King with God for the world, then the reality of that trust in Him, life determined to be lived with Jesus, then you can escape that reality. And it's not simply. Just trying to escape like an escape room. It's a pursuit towards. It's a walk with. Yes. It's arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with God, yes. linked to Him. Amen. And so, note too that He gives these series of actions. I gotta say that these actions aren't a checklist. So, if you just pulled out your notepad and said, okay, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, then I'm in, <laughs> I'm good. That's not what this list is. It's not a checklist to get into eternity. It's actions of a life marked by eternity. It's practicing restorative justice in the everyday. It's an outcome of a relationship with the king lived as an agent on his behalf. So they're illustrative, not comprehensive. See, when people act in these types of ways, especially in this century, in the ancient world, they're operating from a place where death doesn't hold power over them. And for us, if we are linked and attached to Jesus, we can then operate from a place where death doesn't hold final power than us. Because death is the doorway, not the end. It's life lived with God for the world. It's it's operating from a place where selfishness, the height of me at all times, doesn't rule my life. It's the height when we are with God. We live with God for him, for others. See... The sin of neglect is present here. When Jesus is providing this answer, it's the damnation of the do-nothings. But God wants us to build a good world with God for others. And so each of those kind of directions, those actions is an answer to a larger question. We all have a will. So whose will is sovereign in your life? Is it God's will or your will? And the, and the story of life lived with God, with others, is to start feel where that intersect and where they overlapped and come to an awareness of when we thought it was God's will, but it's actually our own will. And it's not like God's will is some secret that we have to decipher. He gives it to us Amen. time and time again. Love others. Love me with your total being. And now the fun part is we get to figure out how that manifests itself and your unique story and your unique relationships. And we get to seek that out together. See, Lewis, C.S. Lewis soberly concludes in his famous essay, essay on hell this way. He says there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those whom God in the end says, thy will be done All of those who are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe that the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom which they have demanded. So I ask you, what type of person do you want to be? Maybe as you think older later on in life, and some of you who are older, you've spent time reflecting on your life. What kind of man or woman do you wanna be? And each one of us is something that is growing, that will result in hell if it's not curbed. If it's not dealt with, not defeated. It will turn us into the kind of person who is defined by selfishness and rebellion in this life and echo into the next. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 says it this way. Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead and all that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Again, think word picture here. Has anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, tossed in to be separated from God for all eternity? getting the utmost of what their heart wanted and hell was not meant for people but we get what we want see eternal punishment is always in tandem with eternal life your view of eternal life has influence of your view of eternal punishment if you realize that life with Jesus expressed here and now is the start of your eternal life once you've been baptized in him, you say yes and you're starting to live that out now, you'll view eternal punishment in a similar manner. You will not be thankful or grateful for the good things that have come. You'll see, you'll, you'll always be ready with a rebuttal or a comeback of, well, they get what they deserve or I g- I'm getting what I deserve and you're constantly trying to balance the scales And we think as what we did to inherit eternal life is our own work and our own effort. But in both of these cases, what Jesus is saying is those who are attached to the one true God of all, they are the one who have the eternal life. Those who are found in Christ get a walk with him, not just in this life, but into the next See, the Bible is not about escaping a material world for a non-spiritual, for a spiritual, non-material world. Hope is of a resurrection into a new physical world. That's what 1 Corinthians talks. And when Roman taunt and when Paul writes in Romans and he taunts death, it's because people who are in Christ do not have to fear that reality. Not that we seek death or uh, maybe you're going to go out and walk on a tightrope and try to say, look at, look at me what I can do. Not that you seek it, but you're not defined by it. It holds no power over you. Amen. See, hell exposes the lie we have told ourselves since the garden. That the lie that we don't need God. And those who draw away from the source of all life that is good are left with those only bad things. As C.S. Lewis says, there is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God just hands out to anyone They they are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And if you are close to it, if you are attached, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. And once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Let's go back to the question. How could a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. See, in his most loving nature, he enables people to choose their heart's desire. And in doing so, choose eternal life apart from God, thus hell, getting the consequence of every bad thing they've earned up in this life be mitigated out in that reality. See, we want justice. Justice just justice not at our expense. We don't want to have to pay that price. See, hell is a place of eternal justice. See, we think the best of life at times is life apart from God, or we're better off to service other gods. We think it's unfair to God to send to hell, but actually, we want what our heart wants. And that's the hope of the Christian life, is that once we're attached to Jesus, Jesus creates in us a new heart, new desires, so we start to want different things. We want to be more like him. We want to be like him, holy, loving, full of peace, and spread that reality within the world in which we live. So on that final day of the Lord, John says this again in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw... Heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame with many crowns were on his head. Had his name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on that white horse wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of King and Lord of Lords. In Revelation, Jesus comes on a horse. But two things to notice. He's pre-bloody. And the sword comes from his mouth as a symbol as he is the one who can define good and evil within our world that it's through his power and his presence in our lives that we can know what good and evil actually are. And it's also by his blood that we can be the remedy within the world because he is the remedy for us. See, Jesus is depicted as a sacrificial lamb early in Revelation. So when the final battle starts for the sake and the fate of the world, he's already that pre-bloody. But Jesus isn't out for our blood. He used his blood to overcome. See, this promise is both a promise that justice will be done and an invitation to give us access to eternal life and free our world from corruptions. Friends, our goal isn't to run and hide and wait for heaven. It's not to run or hide and be scared of hell. But it's because of the blood of the lamb and he has overcome that are in our lives it's best to live by that story. To offer a more compelling view of heaven than fear of hell. May we offer a more compelling view of heaven than fear of hell. Some of you are concerned that friends, relatives don't fully understand what they are choosing and maybe even in your own heart, you grapple with this reality. My hope is that as you journey with Jesus, with God, seeking him, that your heart be transformed, that you come to know what good and evil is, not by what's right in your mind, but what's right in his. And you have been given the mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to navigate everyday life. And so may you live heaven on earth in hope of the ultimate reality and not fear hell and its power over you. And so may we be people who love people to heaven. Rather than scare people out of hell. And I hear it all the time. People say well that won't work. It did. In Jesus. The love of Christ. On the cross. Can make us a new person. Give us new life. Make us a new family. And so may we be people. Who are loved by God. And then can. Love others well, love him in response, and transform the world. Not because we can perform a list of acts like Matthew listed off there. Because we don't seek to make some checklist, but because we are loved, and so we seek for ways to love, to let other people know that their story matters. Because we are shaped by the one true bigger story that we were made for a purpose, that we are loved by God. He came embodied. He took all that on himself and he gives us hope in that resurrection that we will be able to be resurrected again with him one day. See, and my hope is that Generations Church doesn't need a constant set of programs or promotions to call people to act in a certain way, but that we be people who as we seek God together, that we are shaped by it, that when we hear these words, we may long to have those words said to us, that we long to be a part of the sheep. And we love people so much that we're willing to love them so deeply that if they say they would rather be a goat than a sheep, that we do everything within our power through love to convey and offer a more compelling vision of heaven. And that church is a vision worth living, a vision worth fighting for, because that is what Jesus did for us in the cross. And he gave us that hope and that reality. So let me pray for us. And then we'll close and be sent well together. God, you are good, you are everything that is right and true. Forgive us when we would rather live life by our own power, our own strength, define right and wrong on our own terms. May we seek you to define good and evil based on your terms. May we hope for the day when justice will be served and be transformed by the grace we received through your act on the cross. God, in your word, you give us a pretty graphic picture of life and eternity apart from you. May we be grieved by the people who would rather choose that. May we not be scared of death God, may we repent of our selfishness. May we say yes to you. May we find our forgiveness of sins only in you. Help us to bring heaven to earth and the everyday things of life and the relationships that we find ourselves in through you, the power of your spirit. Thank you for your love and for your grace who even offered us eternal life, who paid away for us, who gives us the remedy to the own disease in our souls. And it's in Jesus' mighty, mighty and cleansing name I pray. Amen. Per our usual, what I want us to do is just pray that closing prayer together. And maybe you pray it for someone you love. Maybe you pray it for our church. Or maybe you just sit and listen. And so may we just pray this together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Through this reality, may you live your faith every day, everywhere. May God's family expand and grow. May your motivation be because of Jesus living out his story. May you make his ways, be known, and then lived for generations to come. Amen. Hey, you're loved, you're sent, your story matters. We love you.